Okay, y'all, we are starting a new series, so here we go. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 32. That's where we're going to start. We're going to start with Jacob. I don't know what we're going to do next week. I think we might go to Job. I was thinking, let's start old and move. I, and then I said, no, I'm not going to put like any rhyme or reason to it, like some chronological order. I'm just going to do what I feel like doing it that week, whatever the Spirit leads. So this week he led uh, to Jacob. Next week we'll see what it is. I think it might be Job. Uh, or we could jump into Paul or, or even into Jesus. I, I don't know. We'll see. So here's the question to begin the mini-series. I hinted at it last week. I'm going to really tease it out a little bit more today, this week. How has seven to eight months of crazy, right, and chaos with no end in sight, how has it impacted you personally? How has it impacted the church, Redeemer, but the church universal? How has it? And I mentioned that according to the experts, church experts, the church universally so. Here, I know as a pastor, I know what we're feeling here, and I know what the church uh, is feeling in Waco, and I know what the church is feeling from other pastors that I have close relationships with, and, and the networks that are out there, obviously, and with our own denomination, and just being uh, a normal, ordinary person who just walks around and listens <laughs> and knows what's going on, just like you do, Right? Uh, according to the experts, according to everybody, the church universally feels disconnected, disconnected from God, disconnected from meaningful relationships, disconnected from mission. That's the universal feeling. So the question is why, and I just want to suggest there might be two possible answers before we get into what we're going to look at today, just to set up a series. Here's possible reason number one, the crazy, the chaos reveals what's already there. We've used this illustration over and over again where I've talked about this cup where you, your fist hits the cup and water spills on the ground. And, and I ask you, why is there water on the ground? You say, because the fist hit the cup. And I say, yeah, not exactly. There's water on the ground because there's water in the cup. All the fist did was reveal what's already there. The chaos, the crazy of these past seven to eight months has simply revealed what's already there. In other words, we already feel disconnected with God, disconnected with, from meaningful relationships, and disconnected to mission. It's just now been brought to the surface so that we actually see it, feel it, and can't ignore it. That's one possible answer. This happens all the time in our lives and our relationships. This is how God works. When he wants to give you self-knowledge, when he wants to give his church self-understanding, he brings larger things that are like big fists that hit the cup of a church, universally so, locally, of a family, of individuals. Why? Because he wants to reveal what's already there. He wants to show us, us. He wants to reveal us to us, right? So, uh, <laughs> why does he do this? Because we're always the last to know who we really are, what we're really like. I actually said these words to my wife like somewhere within the first five years of our marriage. Honey, I used to be a good person till I married you. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that God uh, was actually using marriage to show me me. Right? I didn't like it. Nobody likes that. Right? The Bible can tell you that you're a sinner. But sometimes we need to be shown that we are. 
So perhaps there's this sense which in all of us and the sense in which is in our culture and the sense which has been in the church for a long time that there's a disconnection with God and a disconnection from meaningful relationships and a disconnection from mission. And all the chaos did is reveal what's already there. So we, we see it. You can't ignore it. So what is the crazy revealing about you, about your relationship with God, your relationships with other people, and your relationship to mission? What is it revealing to you? Uh, is it revealing a lack of connection? Is it revealing the need for more connection? What is it revealing? Another possible reason for feeling disconnected with God, disconnected with others, disconnected from mission is this, drowning in non-gospel teaching. What is that? What do, you, what do you say, Jeff, when you say drowning in non-gospel teaching? This is what I mean, drowning in law teaching, and I mean the real law teaching, like the law from the Bible, and then there's good advice teaching, which is kind of the stuff that we kind of think is just good, whether it's spiritual, uh, whether it's wise, whether it's political, whether it's ideological, right? That's good advice kind of teaching, drowning in law teaching, drowning in religious teaching, drowning in how to fix yourself teaching, how to be spiritual teaching, how to be a good Christian teaching, how to fix the culture teaching, how to fix race relations teaching, how to fix poverty teaching, how to fix a culture teaching, how to fix the state teaching, drowning in non-gospel teaching. The Apostle Paul tells pastors and church leaders in the church, quote, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, and then this, listen to what he says, and to the teaching. Definite article. What is that? The teaching. Devote yourselves. I mean, like, if you've played sports, your coaches are asking you to be devoted, to give yourself to it. The teaching is gospel teaching. The teaching is gospel doctrine. The teaching is gospel theology. That's the teaching. And he goes on to say, practice these things, immerse yourself in them. In other words, he's saying drown yourself in them. He's specifically talking to pastors and church leaders. He's saying, listen, you need to drown yourself Soak yourself, saturate yourself in gospel preaching, teaching, speaking, and communication, period, is what he's telling leaders. Well, well why does Paul tell pastors and church leaders and, and the church to drown themselves in the waters of gospel-centered teaching? Why would he say such a thing? Why would he make that such a big deal? The answer is this. There's two answers. One, he goes on to say this. He exposes what happens when you don't. He says, listen, those that don't do this must be silenced. Who? Those that don't teach non-gospel teaching. Why is Paul so extreme? I mean, that's incredibly extreme. I've never quite figured out how you silence somebody, but I've, I'm, I'm game to learn. I really am. Never more so than this season that we're in right now. 
Here's what he says. This is why they must be silent, since they are upsetting. You know what that word means? It literally means capsizing, overthrowing, turning someone inside out. In other words, it's the stranger things, putting them into the upside down. So that, since they are upsetting whole families, how? By teaching what ought not to be taught. That's answer number one. Answer number two, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and what? The teaching. Gospel-centered teaching, gospel-centered truth, gospel-centered realities, gospel-centered doctrine, gospel-centered theology. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Why? For in doing so, you will save yourself and your hearers. For in doing so... You will speak others back to life again. For in doing so, you'll be put back together again. For in doing so is the only hope for real change. Gospel-centered teaching connects us to God, connects us to meaningful relationships, and connects us to mission. Gospel-centered teaching changes the world. So what are some areas of non-gospel teaching in the church today, in these past seven to eight months possibly, that are confusing, they're chaotic, and they're weird? I've just been creating a running list. I, I listen to podcasts. I listen to... Uh, well, people are quick to show me social media stuff because I'm not on social media. Thank God I'm not on social media. I'd be such a jerk. Um, so anyhow, here's some areas. I'm just going to run through these, and then we're going to get into this text, I promise. Areas dealing with core Christianity. Those are some areas, some non-gospel teaching that's going on right now that's so confusing to us, so chaotic to us, so weird to us. Uh, like, what is the Bible? Like, what does the Bible do? Like, how do you read the Bible? Like, what's the Bible really about? Okay, that kind of stuff. Other areas of core Christianity, like, how do you actually connect with God? I mean, seriously, how does that happen? How do you experience God? And then what's the difference between law teaching and gospel teaching? Law teaching means like, the law that God actually gives, and then plus the good advice teaching that we're so free to give. What's the difference between law teaching and gospel teaching? And what happens when you confuse them? Confusing answers to these things, lack of answers to those core issues, obviously increase Feelings of disconnection with God, disconnections with each other, disconnections with the mission of the church, right? What are some other areas? Areas dealing with identity. Who are we? What is identity? What's the identity of, of others of a different race? What's the church? Who is the church? Confusing answers or lack of answers in this fundamental area will obviously produce Feelings of disconnection from God, disconnection from others, disconnection from mission. What are some other areas of non-gospel teaching that are so confusing and so chaotic and so weird today? Here's another one. 
areas dealing with meaningful relationships. Like, what is love? What is, what is community? What is friendship? Is it a cafeteria? Is it bail when it gets difficult? Is it loyal? What is it? Confusing answers or lack of answers here obviously will increase feelings of disconnection with God, disconnection with others, disconnection with mission. What are some other issues? I'm going to run through these really quick. Areas dealing with justice. Who's justice? What is justice? What is racism? What is sin? What is the universal human condition? (laughs) What is the universal human need? What are another areas? I think this is an area. What about areas dealing with change? What is change? How do you change? What does change look like? How does it happen? How do hearts change? How do relationships change? How does a culture change? How do homes change? How does the workplace change? How does race relations change? How do we change? Confusing answers or lack of answers here obviously produce feelings of disconnection with God, others, mission. Lastly, this is a new one because even one of my heroes, I'm like, what is this? Confusing areas dealing with church and state, what, what Augustine would call the city of man and the city of God, what the church historically is called the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. What is the state? What is the church? What's the mission of the state? What's the mission of the church? What's the tools or the instrument of the state? What's the tools or the instrument of the church? What does a good citizen look like? And what does a good church member look like? And what happens when they get all mixed up? Lack of answers, confusing answers to these issues obviously produce feelings of disconnection with God, others, and mission. So, to address these, we are starting a mini-series starting today to address this feeling of disconnection with God, disconnection with people, disconnection with mission, a mini-series on stories from the dark. So, in Esther, it was... The mystery of the missing God, where is God in that text? In this series, it's we're in the dark, where's the light in the text? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Today, we start with alone in the dark. Jacob. All right, so Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way and the angels met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. (laughs) So he called the place Mahanaim which means two camps. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell you, my lord, in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau. He is coming to meet you. Fantastic. And there are 400 men with him. Oh, oh, an army. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps. That's interesting. 
thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, this is the first time Jacob prays in all of Genesis, just so we're, we're clear on that. Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good, that I may do you good. That's what you told me. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of your steadfast love and your faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers and the children. But you said, God, you said I surely will do good to you and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. Now let's jump to verse 22. That same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, crossed the ford at Jabbok. Then he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint. It, it literally like blew his hip. And he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, what is my name? Jacob. Then he said, no, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven, you have wrestled, you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the sinew of his thigh, on the sinew of his thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we ask that you would speak us back to life again. We thank you that your words, the teaching. Is what changes us, which changes our relationships, which changes the world. And so, Lord, and it's not just like, uh, yeah, we're hearing it, so this is a great thing. Your church, classical Christianity, your church through the ages has said that it doesn't matter if there's 10 people here or there's 6,000 people here or in other places all over the world, that when, when the teaching is communicated, you're at work in the world. So, Lord, work in Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all, look at verse 6. It says, uh, and the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, we came to your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Uh, Esau is Jacob's pandemic. Esau is Jacob's chaos. Esau is Jacob's confusion. It's his crazy, Right? Now watch what happens to him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid. This is his emotional state. This is his personal state. This is how he's feeling. He's having a panic attack. And then he's distressed. Literally what this is saying, distress literally means being squeezed to death. So this is, you know that feeling, if those of you that are claustrophobic, you know that feeling when you, well, that feeling of claustrophobia, right? 
you're so pressed in. Pete tells the story how he was in this place called the birth canal, which was some, some place that he was, uh, what do you call it when you spelunking or whatever, whatever he was saying. But he was in it, and he was always freaking, already freaking out. He's going in what's called the birth canal. He had everybody talk him into do it. All his buddies talked him into do it. And he says while he was crawling and it was getting smaller and smaller, all of a sudden he felt this little pebble roll from his belt up to his chest and pin him, pin him in the birth canal in a mountain, like I don't know how far down. And he freaked out. Can you imagine? Just even talking about it freaks me out right now. The whole weight of the mountain and the world pushing you in. That's distress. Your world shrinks. It just gets real small. You just are pressed in. That's why in the Bible it says, I put you in wide open places, right? Because nobody likes closed in places. Nobody. Look at Genesis 32, 13. So he stayed there the night. Night in the Bible is never a good thing. The night in the Bible is always an image. It's a metaphor of doom and terror and horror and disaster, distress, chaos, right? Verse 32, uh, 21 of 32, and he, and he himself stayed that night, so night again in the camp. And then 32, 22, it says that same night. So three times we're told it's night. Three times is the, the, the perfect number for repetition. So this is communicating to you and me total darkness, complete darkness, perfect darkness. And then there you get it in verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. Jacob is alone in the darkness. So what does Jacob do? Well, he does what all of us do. First, he freaks out, right? And then he struggles in the dark. And so that's what happens with the rest of this passage. In verses 9 through 12, he, he struggles in the dark by trying to control God. That's what his prayer is all about. And then in verse uh, 21, 12 through 21, he tries to control Esau. That's why he starts pairing things up. He's like, okay, okay, I can appease him. I'll earn his favor. I'll, I'll do something to control him. And then finally in verse 22, he tries to control his losses. He divides his family of those things that he really cares about, his loss, pain, his suffering. He's in control. He's trying to be in control in the dark. So Jacob is alone, struggling in the dark, trying to control the dark. He does exactly what we do. Now, when you're alone, struggling in the dark, what's your ultimate struggle, though? This is what I want us to think about. When you are alone, struggling in the dark, what is your ultimate struggle? In other words, what this text is going to reveal is that there is a struggle behind the struggle. We see his struggle, but there's a deeper struggle going on. What's the struggle behind the pandemic? What's the struggle behind all the confusion and chaos in our culture right now? What's the ultimate struggle behind struggling race relations? What's the ultimate struggle going on right now between you and someone on Twitter or Facebook? What's the ultimate struggle behind the struggle? Our first clue is found in verse 1. Look, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him there. This is phenomenal. <laughs> this is so incredible. It's like, all of a sudden, this gets really spooky and supernatural. He's coming back to the promised land, and what happens? He's greeted by two angels. When he left the promised land, he went by the angels. 
It kind of harkens back to remember when in paradise, in paradise when the fall happened and Adam and Eve were, were kicked out of paradise, there were two angels that stood in the way for no one could come back into paradise. In other words, wherever God localizes his presence, it's to be guarded because the concentrations of holiness are so immense and so powerful. If you got near it, it obliterate you. And so what's happening here is that God has localized his presence on earth in a place called the promised land. And so he put angels around the borders. This is wild. And Jacob saw them, and he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahaniam, which means two camps. So what's going on? Well, one Genesis scholar explains it this way, a guy named E. Fox. From this starting point, everything is subsequently a matter of two camps or two levels, the divine and the human. This is the key to understanding everything that follows. In other words, what's happening here is that right at the beginning of this text, you're given two lenses to look at this text. You're given two levels to look at this text. You're going to look at the level and the human level, and you're going to see what's going on with Jacob. But the text is actually asking you and me to open our eyes to another level. The invisible world. The divine level. So in camp one, you have Jacob lens. And in camp one, you hear Jacob say, I'm alone in the dark. And then on camp two, you have the divine lens, which says, open your eyes, there's more going on. So the second clue behind the struggle, the second clue of the struggle behind the struggle is found in verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him. Literally, this is great. The man got dusty with him. Because if you're going to wrestle, you're going to get on the ground. It's ground and pound, right? You're on the ground. You get dusty. The man got dusty with him. This is close quarter combat. Greco-Roman wrestling, whatever. This might be the beginning of Greco-Roman wrestling. I don't know. Although the Greeks and the Romans weren't around then. Who is this mysterious man? The author is intentionally foggy about him, but again, just like the angels, we're given some breadcrumbs to say, open your eyes and look a little more. (laughs) The author is intentionally foggy, but whoever this man is, he has superhuman power. And it's like he has such superhuman power, you can tell he's holding himself back because he doesn't strike Jacob's hip. He doesn't punch Jacob's hip. gently touches Jacob's hip and rips it out of socket and permanently disables him for the rest of his life. Superhuman power. The next clue is that whoever he is, he can't be seen. He's telling Jacob, hey man, you got to let me go, dude. Ah, the sun's coming up. I cannot be around when the sun comes up with you. Why? Well, Jacob finally figures that out, doesn't he? Because throughout the whole Old Testament, there's only one person you can't see in the day. There's only one person you can't see face to face. You can see angels. You can see all of creation. You can see demons. You can see the paranormal world. You can see the glorious world. 
there's one being, though, that cannot be seen, and that's God. Verse 30, I have seen the face of God, and yet I lived. (laughs) Who is this mysterious man? Who is this man that Jacob is wrestling, getting dusty with? It's God himself. I mean, just let that sink in just for a little bit. He's wrestling with God. So what's going on? What's the point of all this, y'all? What's the point of wrestling with God? What is it? Here's the point. The point of this text is that Jacob has been wrestling his whole life. Jacob has been struggling his whole life for something. And whatever that something is, it's the struggle Behind all the struggles. Jacob has been struggling his whole life for something. And whatever that struggle is, it's the struggle behind the pandemic. Whatever that struggle is, it's the struggle behind cultural chaos. Whatever that struggle is, it's the struggle behind feeling disconnected from God, disconnected from people, disconnected from mission. It's the ultimate struggle, whatever the struggle is. What is the ultimate struggle? Well, we first meet Jacob. He's wrestling. He's struggling with who? Esau. This is so phenomenal. When is he struggling with Esau? We're told in his mother's womb. Two twins struggling. What were they struggling for? Even then the text is saying to be the firstborn son. Well, what is the firstborn son? Who is the firstborn son? The firstborn son is the blessed son. And we're told way back, given insight into the struggle behind the struggle for Jacob, he's been struggling his whole life for blessing. He's been struggling his whole life to be blessed. Then we see Jacob, we watch him wrestle with his father's love. He wants his father's love so desperately, but Esau gets it. One writer says it this way, there are few things more wounding to a son than a father favoring one son over another. Jacob has been struggling his whole life for a blessing. Now we watch Jacob struggle, and by the time we get to this point, we've watched him now throughout Genesis, if we read this story, we watch him struggle for his father's formal affirmation. This is so weird. It's like he doesn't have it like in reality and spontaneity in the heart, his father's love, but he goes after his father's formal affirmation. And this is where it gets a little creepy because what he does is it should have gone to Esau because Esau's the firstborn son, but Jacob disguises himself, pretends to be Esau. Of course, that wrecks everything, and so he has to flee for his life. And you've got to ask yourself, what, why would someone wreck their relationship with their father, whatever was left, wreck their relationship with their brother, whatever was left, lose the relationship they have with their mom, lose the relationship they have with their community, lose the relationship they have with a whole nation for a ritual, ceremonial 
One scholar says it this way, under even false pretenses, he longed to hear his father say, I delight in you more than anyone else in the world. Jacob has been struggling for a blessing his whole life. And then finally, we watch Jacob struggle with a dude named Laban. This guy's a, he's an interesting guy. Well, why was he struggling with Laban? Because he wanted Laban's daughter, a girl named Rachel. And when he saw Rachel, he thought, she will bless me. Her beauty will bless me because he loved her beauty. Her love will bless me. Jacob struggled for a blessing his whole life. This, this is the ultimate struggle behind all your struggles. This is the ultimate struggle behind all my struggles. This is the ultimate struggle behind all our cultural struggles, racial struggles, political struggles, pandemic struggles. Verse 26, then he, who's this he? The mysterious man said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? The mysterious man says that. What is your name? Now, Jacob's name means what? The deceiver. Jacob's name means the lawbreaker. James, Jacob's name means the spiritual loser. Jacob's name means you're the you're the thief of blessing. Jacob's name means I'm a corpse sealed in a tomb and the most important being in the world is asking me for my name. To admit his name is to admit that he is these things. To admit his name is to admit that he's guilty. To admit his name is to admit he's alone in the dark. And Jacob said, my name is Jacob. I'm a sinner. Then he said, this mysterious man, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have wrestled, you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. You've overcome, you've won, Jacob. You won. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? In other words, Jacob, you already know who I am. <laughs> now don't miss what happens next. And there he blessed him. And there he blessed him. And there he blessed him. Jacob's struggle for blessing is over. A blessing in the Bible is always verbal. You know that? That's so fascinating. When you look at, at blessings in the Bible, they're always verbal. It's always a verbal blessing. It's like, bless them, verbal, bless them, verbal, bless them, words. <laughs> words, in other words, blessings are God speaking us back to life again. Blessings are words that pass into your soul. 
a blessing goes down deep into the roots of who you are. It goes down deep into the roots of your very being and changes you. It raises you from the dead. It makes you new. Transforms you, whatever word you want to call it. It turns your night into day. A blessing is experiencing God. It's so powerful. A blessing is something that literally passes into your soul. This is why the sun rose when God blessed Jacob. This is why the night ended when God blessed Jacob. So Jacob was alone in the dark, and the sun rose the moment he was blessed. So what words make the sun rise in your heart? I mean, think about this. What words could actually make the sun rise for you? What words can God speak that would actually pass into your soul and completely raise you from the dead? What words could God speak that could turn your dark into to the rising of the sun? What words? This is what's so frustrating about this text. We're not told those words. Or are we? Maybe, or they must be. Don't you think they would be? When God gives the ultimate blessing to a human being, and it's recorded in the Bible, don't you think that those words would probably be part of the words that Jacob would have heard? I would think so. So there is a great descendant of Jacob, and when he showed up, there, the heavens opened, and God spoke words to him. God blessed him, and these were the words, you, you are my son. You I love. You I am well pleased with. Admiration. Recognition. Overwhelming. Immense. Indissoluble love. The words must be found in Jacob's name change too, wouldn't they? I mean, his name was... Uh, Jacob, which meant he's the striver, he's the, the wrestler, he's the deceiver, he's trying to save himself, trying to save his life, trying to find, he's trying to find a blessing. But you know what Israel means? God strives for you. God wrestles for you. God fights for you. God overcomes for you. God wins for you. And so maybe Maybe it's a combination of the two. You have the descendant, uh, the great descendant words, and then you have the change of Israel, and it would be something like this. You are loved by me. That's who you are. And so God would say something by putting both these together, the words that would actually cause the sun to rise, the words that would actually give light to the darkness would actually be loved by God. You are loved by me. That's who you are. And also, I am your... I am your light in the dark. I'd bless you. I'd fight for you. I'm the light in the dark. So how is Jacob's, how is God, Jacob's salvation, how is his light? How does this love rise like the sun in the dark? Here's how it happens. How did it happen? I mean, how did he get this blessing? It's fascinating, and I mean, it's one thing for the warden to speak it, but how does it come to him? The only way that it could come to him was by this mysterious, by God actually becoming weak, 
This is what's so wild about the passage. You see it, it kind of freaks us out a little bit. It's like God's wrestling with Jacob, but it's like God's saying things. This mysterious man is saying things like, hey, man, you're prevailing over me. That's kind of weird, isn't it? That's weird to me when I'm like, whoa, that's so weird. Or, hey, you know, let me go. The, the morning's coming. And then it just hits us. God became weak to bless him. God became a man to bless him. And so how does God bless you? How does God bless me? How does God end the struggle? How does God put light to you and me alone in the dark? How does the sun rise in us? How does the blessing pass into our soul? When you realize that God became weak for you, when you realize that God became a human, a mysterious man again for you, you are loved by me. I became a, a mysterious man for you. I became weak, so weak, it looks like everyone prevails over me. It looks like the cross prevailed over me. It looks like sin prevailed over me. It looks like darkness prevailed over me. And then I just rose. You are loved by me. You are my daughter. You are my son. That's who you are. I am the blessing, and I give the blessing you've been looking for your whole life. I'm the light in the dark.